Um, we're gonna bring up our panelists now. Come on up and take your seats. Um, and I will quickly introduce myself. My name is Stephanie Jewett, as I mentioned a moment ago. I'm the co-founder of, am I getting shushed? All right, now. <laughs> Not at a women's event. Okay, just kidding. Um, I'm the co-founder of startups, uh, Selfmade Sisters. We recently rebranded. And I am also the uh, founder and CEO of Actively Mobile App and uh, actively helps you find fitness buddies, whether one-to-one -one in the community or at the workplace through our HR solution. We are actively spelled with two Bs. Um, so I wanted to, again, highlight the women who launched today. We have one more incredible panelist who will walk through like a badass lady and join us in just a minute. But really, this is a space and a time and a place that was created so intentionally with so much love that we get to not only meet with each other, expand our networks, grow our businesses, but also to grow and expand our minds. So that's the intention for the panel today. We have really accomplished women who are flying. They are killing it in the corporate world. They're building their own businesses. And the goal is that we share strategic, tactical advice, not just feel good, not just Instagram quotes, those are cute, but that doesn't move the needle on our businesses and on, on us growing as individuals. So that is the impetus for this panel. And so what we're gonna do now is, is this my seat, by the way, Miranda, Kathleen? Okay, cool, this one works. <laughs> this is it, if it fits, I sit. Um, that's Instagram cat humor, so uh, I'm sorry immediately for that. Um, so I'm gonna let the panelists introduce themselves quickly and tell you how incredibly impressive they are. No pressure. Cool, no pressure. Uh, I'm Margarita Caraballo. I'm currently a product manager uh, focusing in a technical app performance uh, space at MailChimp. And I'm also the Atlanta chapter director of an organization called Dequeria. It's uh, the US's largest uh, Latinx uh, tech worker force in the country. We're a nonprofit uh, who focus on helping entry-level uh, technologists who identify as Latine uh, develop their skills, as well as helping mid to senior level professionals actually enter a corporate space. Because we know that statistically, uh, generally entry-level positions are predominantly held by women or minorities in general, but there seems to be quite a hard time uh, getting career mobility up the ladder at any corporate environment. And so we focus really heavily on partnering with uh, Latinx founders like Stephanie and uh, other founders around the country to help create space at a mid to upper level for uh, Latina technologists. Uh, and then we also hyper-focus on intersectionality. So in the United States, uh, Latinidad tends to look very uh, Sofia Vergara or like JLo. Not that they're not dope, because they are. Uh, but Latinos, is, it's an ethnicity. It's not a racial identity. So Latine can look like me. Latine can look Afro-Latino, indigenous Latino. And so as an organization, Tequeria is hyper-focused on that type of space, not just letting it happen naturally, because it won't. We know that our work needs to be intentional. It needs to be actively anti-racist. Um, and so that is also part of the reason that we hyper-focus on helping tech companies uh, build their DE&I strategy to really hyper-focus on inclusion as an angle for Latinidad. 
Uh, hi, my name is Jenna Settle. Um, my background is in biomedical engineering from Georgia Tech with a minor in biology. I currently work for Abbott in a research and development role. Um, I've been there for seven years now, started as a startup and got to experience um, our product getting FDA approval, uh, which was a really exciting time. And from there, we were bought by a company and then Abbott bought that company. So I've kind of gotten to see um, the progression from startup culture up to you know a bigger corporation, which is a, a kind of a unique experience. Um, I spent the first part of my career really hands-on doing uh, prototyping work in the microelectromechanical systems arena. Um, so really technical, and I, I've enjoyed that. Uh, the last you know few years of my career, I've shifted more to sustaining work. Um, and so what I'm doing with that is helping keep our product uh, at a high level of quality to help as many patients as we can, which is really why I got into biomedical engineering in the first place. And uh, other than that, I'm really passionate about getting involved in the community. I participate each year in the American Heart Association Heart Walk. Um, I also am a volunteer with Kate's Club, and it's an organization that I, I'm really passionate about and I'd be happy to tell, tell anybody more about later. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm just excited to be here and to answer some questions. All right, so third in a row. This is gonna be a little hard to follow up, but we're gonna keep the, the vibe going, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get ready. <laughs> so hi everybody, I'm Alicia Eckerd. I work for Siemens. It's a very large uh, firm, so we are what we like to call uh, half and half engineering and manufacturing. My team, however, is very small, which I appreciate. We are more of a grassroots initiative. We are e-commerce. Funny enough, um, in manufacturing and engineering, this big of a level, especially electricity, um, those companies forgot about the internet, didn't think it was a real thing, and it caught on, and it, and it kept going. And apparently, it's not going anywhere. So my team works on making sure that the data about our products gets onto a website, and that we can actually get younger generations to start buying these products. When I say electrical engineering, I'm talking really big and really small stuff. It's a little bit complex, and my background is not engineering. Mine is actually architecture. So our products range from anything huge, like a turbine, nuclear plant, all the way to your transformer on the street, and all the way down to the circuit breaker in your home. So all of those products, really big span, right? A lot of information, and I actually don't understand 100% of it. But my team <laughs> is a rock star team at getting crap on the internet, and it looks really good. So that's what we focus on, and we are really small. I enjoy it, and because we're really small, it's created an interest in myself looking at work-life balance. Let's be really serious about making sure that we're happy at work and we're happy at home and that they complement each other. And if we don't think that they're complementing, then we've got a problem. So I talk about that a lot. I also have started to look at a lot of, and I'm gonna use a word that we have to talk about, but it's also becoming a buzzword, so I'm a little cautious with it, but we'll say diversity, right? It's a good word. Let's not let it become the buzzword that I think a lot of big companies are using it for. So I'm really aware of that, and we wanna become aware of it and talk about it all the time. True inclusion, that's also why we're all here today, right? We wanna figure these things out and peel back the layers. Um, outside of work, I'll figure out a way to plug my dogs at least once in this conversation. <laughs> Um, if you're not aware that I'm a dog owner, you can just look at my pants. <laughs> Couldn't find the lint roller to save my life this morning. <laughs> so we're going to just lay it all out on the table today. Um, I'm, I'm a very passionate animal lover. We spend a lot of time at the dog park. We go running, a lot of yoga, a lot of fun, a lot of friends. Yeah, got a couple, couple yoga or dog lovers out there, I hope. Yeah, all right, this is good. And with that, next. Thank you.
Thank you. Well, this is awesome. I'm glad to be on the panel with all of you. Um, I'm Ifra. I'm the founder of USIT. It's short for University Sitting. It's an on-demand babysitting app that connects highly vetted college students, grad, undergrad, PhD, to busy parents. Um, we're in Atlanta, and we just launched in Tampa as well. Um, we did a promo code for this event, so hopefully some of you used it. Um, I started it in college about two and a half years ago. It was like my last semester of college, and um, I worked full-time after that, and then I quit my job, and then I did, I'm did. i doing this full-time. I've been doing it full-time for a while now. Um, and we have about 3,000 active users in Atlanta, um, and we're working on expanding that in the area as well as in different in Tampa and hopefully different cities by the end of the year. So that's kind of where we are, and I'm excited to be here. Can we give them a round of applause, because that was so impressive. So I think one of the common threads that um, all of these incredibly fantastic women have is that they are leading themselves and they're also leading teams, leading companies. So um, I think leadership is something that we talk about. It's like this lofty term, like, but what does it mean to actually in practice be a really great leader? And what are the leadership qualities that oftentimes we as women might um, need some help developing, that we're kind of those blind spots that we have that we don't know we don't have until it's time to move up the ranks. So um, first, um, for these three um, women who've climbed the ranks at their own companies, we'll start there. What are some of those leadership qualities that you see that um, maybe sometimes men, it comes more readily, they've been more exposed to it to men than that women, that women could use a little bit of we should have some more awareness. We kind of need a little bit of more help or initiative in this space. And it's open to anybody to jump on in. I was going to say, for me, I think it's absolutely confidence. I think that that's something, as I started as a young engineer and you know made it to engineer two and then finally made it to senior engineer, confidence was absolutely one of the things that my boss talked to me about at each of those stages. Um, and I think it is something where I've seen, you know, young men come in and they, they come in with a confidence starting out. And women tend to want to ask, you know, like, oh, is this a, you know, so even starting a question, be like, oh, I, I have an idea maybe. Or the way we talk, the way we frame things, I think um, we can sell ourselves short a little bit. Can I ask, just to dig into that a little bit, yeah. um, whether it was from feedback from your managers or what you've seen now in a more leadership role, are there some kind of tactical pieces that you're like, if you had to say, hey, girlfriend, say this, not this, are there a couple of those things that you can just share that we can take with us? Yeah, absolutely. I think, number one, stop apologizing. I, I think we talk about that a lot as, as women. Um, but yeah, don't, don't interrupt by saying, oh, I'm sorry, I've got an idea. You know, take take ownership of it, and you know, don't don't be afraid of the way you're going to come off. Because if you are, if you're prepared and you're communicating clearly, you're not going to come off in the wrong way. So I think, not, you know, I'm sorry is a big one. Um, another one I would say is if if you see in a meeting somebody say something that you know you've said earlier, um, being willing to say, you know, that's what I said five minutes ago. Or, you know, like this is something. Is that how you would say it, by the way? Like, okay, this is the table, everyone's chiming in. How would you kind of jump in and say, oh, I actually said that? Uh, yeah, I, would, I think that, you know, I would probably approach it in a friendly way, unless, you know, sometimes things can get really heightened in a boardroom kind of situation. But I think just being able to say, yeah, um, you know, that's, that's what I was saying five minutes ago, or 
that's, you know, that's the point I was trying to make. Um, and yeah, just point it out. I don't think you have to say much more than that. I like to go with that first one, yeah. uh, mostly because I have effectively killed things like, it would be nice if X. Yeah. Like, it would be nice if we did X, as though my thing is like a casual thing that we could consider when most of my male peers are gonna be like, oh, well, we should do X. There, there's a very big difference between like, it would be nice if you considered my thing versus we should do X. And I usually go with, oh, I said that five minutes ago. And then to expand upon that, because almost every time I didn't say 100% of the like thing, I didn't reference 100% of the data I had. I you know, might have only gone through like a three minute TLDR on my idea. And for me, it's a good, I've used it as a way to like take control of the conversation back instead of, because I feel like a lot of the hesitation in doing the, well, I said that five minutes ago, is that awkward like, pause afterwards where it's like you are waiting for them to either verbally acknowledge that you said that or like you have that tense eye contact where you're like don't fucking do that shit again <laughs> uh, and so I just take like take control of that conversation back and be like yeah that's what I was saying five minutes ago and to expand on that here's like the additional data on why we're fucking doing this and it's not a nice thing to do we're just going to do this thing yeah, I, so I'm loving what these two have started here. So there are two things I want to take from each of these. First, let's talk about confidence for a second. It's really hard to get and it's even harder to keep, right? That's the first piece. And you had talked about statistics and how mm -hmm. this can help you. So what I have found, there are probably three to four key pieces that I try to keep at just real close to my heart. First, it's your ally group. We'll get into that later. You have to build it and you've got to work for it because being an island is really lonely. Your allies will help you. In that room, when you're losing your confidence, you just have to be there with them and they're gonna get your back. So that's the first piece. So do that work for yourself, build your ally groups. Second piece, come with your statistics and your proof, don't go in empty handed. Somebody's gonna ask you a tough question. And let's be real honest, if you are a person like a man, they wouldn't ask you that tough question. So you need to be ready to back it with the statistics and the information. If you don't know, this is the third piece, be okay with saying, I'm not sure. I'm gonna get back to you because, and here's the pun of the day, I'm not gonna lie to you, honesty is cool. And people do actually really listen to that, right? So if you're honest and you say, here are my statistics, but I don't know about that one, I have somebody that can help us here. In 30 minutes, you can have a conversation and be done with the whole thing. And then you've earned a lot of respect, right? And the fourth thing, like for yourself and for others, don't forget to amplify. You had mentioned uh, saying, isn't that the same thing I just said five minutes ago? Amplify yourself. Remind people, I came up with that idea. Also remind them, she came up with that idea. What about, what about what she just said? Let's dig into it some more. Can you tell me some more about that? So those are probably the four things that I do to build that confidence and that leadership. Like that's, it, leaders are different than managers, right? Inspiring individuals, leading conversations. Yeah, I, I think for me a lot of it is also knowing my worth and knowing, like, being fully centered and knowing what, I, what value I am adding and what part of the team I am uh, and being really clear about that. So generally when I've had the opportunity throughout my career at not just MailChimp but various tech companies to lead different teams, and for me, what you said was super valuable is you have to start with a foundation, which is, you know, one of the last teams I joined was a team full of like dude engineers, like very 
occasional tech bro like sprinkled in there. And as soon as I came in, like they were just not having it. And so for me, it was about starting with building a relationship with them. So instead of doing a kickoff where I came in and was like, here I fucking am, you don't get to not listen to me. It, I took them each out individually for coffees and was like, ask me anything you want. Ask me about me, ask me about my vision for the team, ask me about my vision for this part of our product, ask me about my technical background. Like, go ahead, flex. I'm sure you know something, but like, spoiler dude, I also was an engineer. I also am here on purpose. Uh, and starting that way, like making it clear, I'm a person, but you are also a person with a technical background, and giving them each like 30 minutes to an hour to just like get it off their chest. And then that way, when we moved forward together, they knew that I was fully confident in who I was and why I was there and why the company brought me there. And I was also confident they knew that I saw them individually instead of some large, you know, nameless group of engineers. I knew who they were individually. I knew what brought them individually to this team, why they were passionate about this type of engineering. And so they knew that I was looking out for them moving forward. So whether you can ultimately get along with everyone is irrelevant, but everyone wants to be seen. Nobody is coming to work to do their shittiest job. And so making sure that you're all starting off on the same foot, understanding that I see you for who you are, you see me who for I am, for who I am, and we'll work forward together. Maybe we can be bros, maybe we can't. It doesn't matter. I love that so much. And so part of the reason why we have this really diverse um, panel here is because a lot of the lessons that they are experiencing in corporate America on the other side of the table as entrepreneurs who are raising, who are building their businesses, these are the same kind of settings. It might not be in a corporate boardroom per se at a company you work at, but you're going to deal with the same kind of archetype of guy or woman or boss. Right, so now to pivot a little bit for our entrepreneurs, Jasmine, if you don't mind taking a second just to kind of introduce yourself and then you and Ifra, I'd love to hear the leadership, um, some of the blind spots or areas for growth that female leaders um, can uh, learn from men, what we're not doing that necessarily might come a little easier to men because they've seen it. Yeah. And, and how to navigate those spaces. I like to think men should learn from us, so it's tough for me to think of what I could learn from a man. Um, <laughs> touche, touche, okay. So hi everyone, I'm super sorry I'm late. I'm three events today and I went to the wrong address. Um, my name is Jasmine Crow. I'm the CEO and founder of Gooder. We are a startup here in Atlanta that leverages technology to combat hunger and food waste. Um, so what have I seen men do well obviously fundraise. And I think that it's, it's not something that we can learn from them. I think what they have the ability to do is write an idea on the back of a napkin and, you know, sit down with one of their fraternity brothers or someone that went to the same school as them and get, get capital. Uh, whereas women have to really prove it out. We come into the door with product market fit customers and they still don't doubt, they don't, they doubt us. A lot of times for me, when I was raising funding, I was talking about hunger um, to a lot of rich white men who had never been hungry before. So I did learn that I had to change the narrative of how I had conversations with them to really talk about money. 
and the opportunity. And so I would go in with all of my passion, why hunger, you know, is really deeply important to me, how long I'd been fighting it, why food waste was this really big problem and how they could solve each other. And that wasn't marrying with any of the investors I talked to because they couldn't resonate with it. And I remember speaking to the founders of Lola, and they're doing really well. It's like a feminine hygiene products that get mailed to you. And they had the same problem. You know, you're talking to men about women's feminine hygiene. You can imagine not too many investors were able to relate with them. And what I had to start doing was just talking about the big opportunity. And I think that's what a lot of men do well. Um, is that they sell these big ideas and a lot of them fail, but they're able to pitch it to an investor as this is a big opportunity, you gotta get on board right now, you know, don't wait, they give them that fear of missing out. And so once I did start to change the narrative and talk about how big food waste was, how policy and legislation was taking shape in other parts of the world, um, and really how this could actually make a lot of money, then I was able to kind of get into a few more doors, but it was really hard and it's still extremely hard. So if I could learn anything from men, I would just say to, to sell a bigger story. It's something that I've seen them do well. Was there like a specific um, phrase or a couple of phrases when you're in these like um, settings where there's a lot of men in the room, were there things that you've learned like if I say this or if I pivot this or if I, like are there any little small tactical advice little strategic pieces we can take and implement in our day-to-day? -day. I just think to know the terms that they know. And so for me, I wasn't a, I'm not a technical founder. I come from a social impact space. And so I really knew about hunger and these are all the statistics I knew. But I had to really learn like what gross profit margin was. I needed to understand what does it cost for me to acquire a customer? What's the lifetime value of a customer? And once I started to just educate myself, I went to Y Combinator Startup School online via YouTube. So I just educated myself. I didn't have the resources. I didn't have friends and family who could write me my first checks. Um, I raised all of my money. I completely bootstrapped for the first year and a half entering pitch competitions and really getting customer revenue in. And so everything I had to learn I really had to research it. And so I thought I would hear them ask other people, oh, what's your gross profit margin, all this? And one thing I would say, one of my mentors, a male told me this, he was like, just always have answers, right? Because a lot of times people don't know, like it's your business. And if you say like, I don't know, sometimes it's, that's cool, but sometimes it's just have the answer, right? And so I wanted to make sure that I understood those things. And even with me, like my cost to acquire a customer when I first started, I would be very honest and say, you know what? I haven't spent a dime on advertising. All of the customers right now are coming to me inbound. So the only thing I can really attribute to the cost to acquire a customer is potentially my travel costs to go and meet with them, but I'm not spending money on advertising and I would have to walk them through a lot of different things. Um, so I think the biggest thing to do is just know the terminology because people are going to ask and if you don't know it, they already think that we know less. They already think that we're um, a tougher bet to make. And the other thing that I learned is that in the investment space, I really think it's a numbers game. I just, you know, I would want you guys to just think about that. Most men or most investors, they traditionally filled these check boxes, you know, a male co-founder, two co-founders, you know, they went to this good school, one of them's a technical founder check, one of them has the business acumen, that's the box that they check. 
um, and they start, they, they use this to kind of formulate if they do all of these things, nine out of 10 times these businesses succeed and those are the only businesses that they've ever invested in. So they see those exits and that's really what they're using. So for women, especially for women of color, it's extremely hard. They don't have as much success statistics to really back behind us. They can't compare me to a Mark Zuckerberg or a, a Dropbox. They can't do that and they could do that a lot easier with other males where it comes in women, there's there's few and far stories of us that aren't told. So you hear the Bumble stories, the Glaciers, but there's not a hundred of us yet. And there will never be until they invest in more women. And that's the other thing I've had to tell them is don't run the numbers game on me because it's unfair because you haven't invested in nearly as many women as you have men. And so the numbers are always going to be skewed. And then those would be the things that I would say. The other thing I would learn is that don't also just check a box for an investor as well. I've had a lot of investors that will say things like, oh, we're, you know, we're looking to invest in more black female founders. And I'll say, well, are you guys ever looking to invest in more, you know, Eastern European white male founders? Because I don't want to just be a checkbox for you. I, wanna, I want you to invest in my company because you believe in it. And if they do that, that's when they give you the resources. I think investor relationships are very important. They're just like your coworker relationships. These people are going to be part of your company for a long time, and you don't want someone who's investing in you because they feel obligated to. You want someone who's really investing in you because they believe in what, what it is you're building, and they're going to extend their network and their reach to actually help you reach your goals and be successful. And that is something early on when I was so desperate for funding that I ended up taking money from people who I've never heard from again. Um, two years later. And so had I had that hindsight then to think, hey, you know what, you really, these people are gonna be, they're on your cap table, you really wanna have a good relationship with them, I probably would've, it would've taken me longer to raise, but I would've raised from the right people. So I would encourage us all not to raise out of desperation. That was really helpful. I'm gonna take all of that in, <laughs> in my business. So that, that was like very good advice, thank you. Um, I would say like in a position I'm in, I'm currently fundraising right now, have raised, um, have gotten a couple of checks and, and from the leadership point of view, um, like I've met with so many, like as she's like white men, probably like 20 to 30 years older than me. That's probably like 98% of my meetings that I've had. And instantly like you go in the room, they're already making judgments about you. You always have to remember that you have a voice. Like they're all A-type personalities too, and they can like lead that conversation and ask you like a lot of questions that are so like geared. They're like negative questions that are geared towards like they they ask different questions than they would ask a man. So you have to answer as you were a man, and and that's something that you can learn. Like the numbers really important. You have to speak money with them. All of this terminology just puts you like on a different level than what they see when you walk in. So like reading books, if you're fundraising, if you're an entrepreneur, like venture deals or like the art of startup fundraising, those are the two I read just to like understand what terminology is being used. And then also what I've recently started doing is I work out of Atlanta Tech Village, so it's this community and I've, talked to, I've been talking to white men who've raised without having like a product before, like they've raised like over 500K or four mil, like literally before they even had their product and talking to them and seeing like what they did and like how they talk. Um, because you can always, I know it's not fair, but you can still learn from like 
how they're talking to different investors and what they're doing that we're not. Um, and yeah, that's the advice I have for that. I mean, it's similar in the nonprofit space, and but I think it comes back to like, for Tequeria, we also have to do a ton of fundraising and finding partnerships in the community, particularly when we're propping up um, a new chapter. But it's, it's knowing that you're not just ticking a box for them and that partnership, I think what you said is incredibly valuable, that that partnership is as important to them as it is to you. And so we've had meetings where that company for its, to save its life could not hire and maintain Latinx folks. And it is because the environment at that company is incredibly toxic and full of gaslighting and absolute garbage. And that's, you know, completely changed the way that we enter those meetings where yes, we need the money to make sure that we can host events for the Latinx tech community where we don't have to charge people to come and we're, we're uplifting the community, but they need us as badly as we need them. They want us because they have this problem in the tech community and they're hoping cutting us you know, a 10 grand check will fix their problem with Latinos. When my goal is to make sure that anyone I'm partnering with, I am not accidentally co-signing this company as like, oh, it's safe to work here as a woman, or it's safe to work here as an Afro-Latina, and you'll be heard and you'll be seen. And so it, I heard this at another panel, you know, I think it was like two weeks ago, it's having the courage to see it through and go hungry for a little while to make the right choice for the longevity of your nonprofit or the longevity of your product. And that is a, a variety of courage that to your point, I don't think we have to learn from men. Having come from poverty, I don't need to learn that lesson from white men starting nonprofits or uh, starting companies. That's something that I already have in me that I am bringing to the table that they don't have. Wow, um, so I think there were so many incredible takeaways and I hope that you are getting like actual um, strategic tactics that you can use in your life, in your business and in the workplace. One of the things that was a common thread here was having, um, we don't hate men, um, is having allyship, right? And what does that look like or mentorship or sponsorship, whether you're in a workplace setting or you're fundraising or you're getting that feedback. So what does allyship? We do have some incredible, lovely men in the room. I don't know if y'all want to be described as lovely, but we have great, powerful, awesome dude bros in the, in, the, in the audience. What does allyship mean, sponsorship mean, and how do you cultivate it? Because it's not about eliminating men from the equation, but also learning some best practices that we can use to kind of overcome the obstacles. So, um, you know, you mentioned your managers. What, are, what does that look like in practice? How does it work best? Um, yeah, I'll start us out here. So uh, one, one nice thing that I like to think about is your reputation is what people say about you when you leave the room, right? An ally is the person who says something for you in your favor when you're not in the room, okay? Very similar concepts. Your ally has to um, amplify you, echo you, when you're not there, okay? So build that relationship. You're not there, someone's talking about something. Maybe they are, maybe you already gave the statistics, the bottom line, all the numbers that we've been talking about. And for some reason, the group is not remembering you, your allies in that room, and they say, hey, do you remember what this person said? They use your name, they identify you as whatever your pronoun is, 
and then they account for that's your information. This is what they brought to the table. Remember them. So they're amplifying, they're echoing who you are and what you brought. The other piece is your allies are encouraging. Okay, they have to be encouraging to you. You're going to forget to encourage yourself, and you're going to have to forget. Sometimes you're going to go through the day, and you're going to forget to give yourself the pat on the back and the small like celebration. Showing up to the meeting was good. Celebrate that. Just be. You were in the room. Good for you. And your ally needs to remind you of that. So your allies have to not only speak for you sometimes, and that's a hard thing to swallow, that you need help, that we need help, right? So they're going to speak for you. They're going to speak with you. And then they're also going to encourage you along the way. Those are the pieces that allies can take away. And remember, if you're in a room and a female's voice is not being heard, call it out. Ask for them to say it again. If they are not in the room and they're being forgotten, remind people who they are, right? And then when you see somebody having a good day or a bad day, tell them thanks. Thanks for the work. And point out the exact reason you're thankful. Thanks for the bottom line that you delivered, thanks for the five bullets that I needed for the summary, thanks for just being there at lunch, right? And that's what the allies can do. And that's how they, they get strong, is to remember how to support us. Yeah, I'm just going to take it back just a couple steps because I think that's great. I think that's the same exact stuff I would say. And what I see day to day in my work is when people will, in a meeting, say it's like, well, that's what she, that's what she just said. You know, that's like the most powerful thing that's ever happened to me in a meeting. But taking it a step back from that, let's say that you're you know, you're somebody who you're like, I want to be an ally, but I don't even really know how to start. It's like, what if, what if it's not my nature to notice these things? And so I think what I would say there is the biggest thing to do is you've got to first open your eyes and decide that this is a cause I care about. And I work with some great men who I think, you know, have kind of made that commitment. And they take the time in meetings to really consider it. It's not an effortless endeavor. You can, you know, if you're, you know, a man or if you're, you don't consider, you know, just don't consider yourself a woman and you can sit in those meetings and you can be blind to it incredibly easily because that's the status quo. So it's a, it's a choice and it's a choice that you have to consciously make. And so that would be my advice if you're somebody who does, is just starting and don't know where to begin is just start by paying attention and start by educating yourself and starting to notice the little discrepancies. Um, and then you start speaking up. And honestly, you know, silence is the biggest setback. When things happen in meetings and a woman is, is not being listened to, and you have that awkward moment where it's like somebody's, you're waiting for somebody to stand up and say this isn't, you know, she has a really good point. It's like that silence is what really kills this forward motion. So. I would also say, uh, if you are in a position where you can either be hiring someone or you are in a position in your company where you are creating jobs or are able to advocate for jobs or able to advocate for particular uh, candidates, do it. For me, it's no longer about like necessarily just speaking up for people who don't look like me or who uh, need additional access, their accessibility questions or there are ethnic or racial identity questions. For me, it's now once you have that social capital at a company and you know who you can burn it with, it's creating space 
because I don't want to be that like white Latina taking up space forever. The only reason that I've bothered doing any of this is to create space for indigenous Latinas darker than me, for Afro-Latinas. That space is valuable. The things that they add to our company can be valuable. And so, you know, something for me has been advocating for internal hiring versus external hiring. If we know our statistics say that we have a diverse pool at our entry level, then it is incumbent upon us as a company to hire people internally who have institutional knowledge about our product, who understand the company already. It's a faster track to onboarding them. You don't have to onboard them. You've already, like you're already paying their 401k or their insurance or whatever. So what is the inherent downside of an internal hire? And it is my job to create the space for that queer person or that African-American person or that Asian person. I'm not married to what type of diversity it is, but I want it to be internal and I want that opportunity to exist. And you can do that, you know, I do that through my nonprofit work, making sure that I am physically located and going to different tech companies and in this very stern monotone voice being like, I see you when you're not creating that space. And this nonprofit will hold you accountable to that because we are partnering with people who don't partner with ICE, who create space for Latinos and who are conscious of creating a safe space for Latines. And I think that's as valuable as, you know, once you're progressing from doing your own educating so that you're not putting the emotional labor on a black woman or a Latina to do that emotional labor for you, to explain, like explain intersectionality and Latinidad to me. I'm here to do that because I, I am a director of that chapter, but don't walk up to any Latina and be like, how do you feel about Afro-Latinas? That shit sucks, like it sucks. So I think you kind of brought us to this um, great um, opportunity to really, um, as, women who are leading and our allies in the room who are leading, right, like this next generation, this next wave of leaders, business leaders, entrepreneurs, we're really up at bat. And that um, a lot of that is gonna sound and look like feminism, right? And I am a feminist, and but what does that, I think there are blind spots within feminism too that we, you know, Let's get some definitions on the table. It's you know not a bad word, it's not a dirty word. I have a girlfriend who sent an email just a few days ago for her company and it was like, I'm not a feminist and I'm not like, I was like, ah, delete. I'm like, uh, just like, you know, there's like this negative connotation and it's more about equality, but it's not just equality for one kind of definition of a woman. Um, so anybody wanna take a little bit at bat of, at like, defining current feminism and how we can be inclusive truly through feminism, not just for some of us. I can go first. So I think it's literally like supporting other women and what that means is like when one woman rises, like even in Atlanta in the community, that really helps other women rise and give them a voice. And like some examples of that, like in entrepreneurship and founders, like I always try to do my best and not just women, like men too, but introducing like doing interest to them to people I know who could help them and things like that where it's so it's so important because that's how you kind of like make your voice like if there's an entrepreneur like me like a couple years ago that was just starting out I didn't know anybody and I had a woman who like introduced me to really like powerful um, either investors or women or like clients that you know really helped me like make 
a like tiny little I can make myself to in as a confident and like successful entrepreneur to other people because a lot of people didn't know me and didn't know what I was doing and it really helped like my client base grow and I think like action like when you meet another woman and you see that you can help them in some way like do it it takes like three minutes out of your day just an email asking them asking another person to do an intro for them is like it goes a long way and and that's usually like mostly what I can do in like my position now and like other people like when I you know that rise up they do the same thing and they it's so powerful and it helps other women really like like grow too so one person makes a big difference I think um, to build on that not only empowering not only building a relationship that's going to bridge this gender gap that really is the heart of feminism right um, if we stick to the real original definition is gender gap and closing it and the differences and the bias between them but it's more than that Okay, so now with the um, evolved modern world, we are at least awake enough to say to each other, we have to understand all of the oppressions and how they all interact with each other. Becoming an intersectional, this, the terminology, the concept, the theory that we're gonna talk about, intersectional feminism, is the idea that I can open my eyes and I can realize that gender plus sexuality, gender plus culture, language, race, ethnicity, these together create a variance of oppressions and they may be felt differently in different parts of the world. We just have to be aware of it, that's the beginning part. So if I'm gonna fight to close a gap between genders, I have to be aware of how it's a little bit different for other groups, right? I'm in a group, that's me. Somebody else is in a different group, and the person beside them is in something completely different. So we have to be aware of these to actually advocate for each other, and if we can advocate for all of the oppressions, somehow, just taking the right step in the right direction, we'll slowly close this gap. I wanted to actually throw something out there. Um, I haven't raised like our two brilliant entrepreneurs here just yet, but um, the things that I have learned on my entrepreneurial journey, I am hella quick. Like there's a sense of urgency that when I meet you, like a lot of ladies are like, oh, have you seen Kylie Jenner's new lipstick? I was like, uh-huh, but how's your 30 second pitch? Or how are you showing up? Or hey, girlfriend, like, you know, this is how you write an email. Like there is a sense of urgency that, um, how we share information with each other, like that you are leaving that next woman, whatever you heard in this panel today about like, you know, when you're in a room and in a space, at a boardroom, at a table, taking whatever you just heard here, that little bit of knowledge and making sure that you're sharing it with the next woman that you're meeting so that it gets, um, we get stronger and faster. So like, what's a great email? It's not like one giant paragraph, a hot mess that nobody's gonna read. That's not gonna help your friend get her business seen by a CEO. Small, tiny things that you can share and like with a sense of urgency is like, that's how you close the gap and I hope a little faster. And it means like making sure, so if I, I am Latina, but if I come across a white woman or a black woman or any, I'm like, did you know this? Have you read this blog? You really need to see this. You need to meet this person. Just having that sense of urgency of like what knowledge, what something can you leave that made that woman a little bit stronger, a little bit better, and you can't solve it for her. She's gotta do the work. But you can share a tiny little piece of knowledge, and hopefully that's what you did today during speed friending. That you shared something when I said I have an ask, and if you didn't get to answer that girlfriend's ask today at the table, send her an email and be like, I actually thought about you, or I met this person that would be perfect for you. Like, that's the only way it moves forward, is like being really, really intentional no matter what. Because, you know, the struggle might look a little different, but we're all dealing with it. So, um, I, 
being intentional, gonna... really, and, and quick and urgent. Like, don't waste time just with the superficial. Let's get to it, because we're all trying to get this money, right? Like, that, <laughs> that, I mean, that, I mean, that and the generational wealth, that's like the two things, right? And if it's not about that, I don't know, it's like... And I think it's acknowledging also that like, this is a practice. You will not arrive at your ideal definition of feminism today or even in five years. It is constantly evolving. The, we were talking about this earlier, you know, some of the things I might have done when I was younger were performative allyship, where I was just regurgitating something or I was just sharing something on social media. Not that that doesn't have its own intrinsic value, but like yoga, knowing that like the, the way I am doing this whatever position today is not as good as the version that I am going to do two years from now. Or if on a day that I'm sick or I got a lot of shit going on for me, my feminism might not be as good today when I'm sick as another day in the future. I'm not sick, sorry. That's a, no I know that just in our yet, current yeah. media cycle, that wasn't a good example, but I think we know the spirit of what I was saying. Uh, so, you know, even if your allyship today or the way you advocate for yourself in a boardroom today is to redirect and make that awkward, you know, that awkward thing happens, that's fine. Know that the next time you do that, you're going to learn from that. In the same way that your feminism today might be advocating for another woman, your feminism tomorrow might be advocating for trans folks because it's feminism is not just about women, it's also making sure that when we close this gender gap, we're also acknowledging that the gender as a binary is a social construct, and it is as damaging to little boys who grow up in this social construct who believe that women, some of them believe that women are lesser than them. Some of them believe racist garbage. And that is what feminism is trying to bridge for me, right? It's how do we allow boys to be soft? Or how do we allow trans children who are on that journey to finding themselves the space to find what version of femininity, of masculinity is actually right for them? That's what feminism is. It's the freedom to be whoever you are and not have to use tactics like, I said that shit five minutes ago, or you know, my pronouns are not she, her, they're they, them, or maybe I want zer, not them. That's what feminism is working, for me, my feminism is working towards, is how do I create space so that then I can just peace out and live whatever version of my life I wanna be living. I love that. Um, so we have a really short window to close up this incredibly powerful part of um, the event. So we're gonna have a, you'll get to pick one of two questions to answer, whichever is like near and dearest to your heart. So either, panelist, each of you, um, either one piece of advice that you think that still resonates with you that you were given, that you is like, this has to be said out loud, or what is one way in practice that women can support women, period, like what moves the needle, Whichever one of those two is near and dear to your heart, one piece of advice that you would share with other women that has you know, changed you and your life and your thoughts, or what is one way in practice more than just Instagram likes, because that algorithm is no joke these days, um, more than just liking each other's stuff on social media, how do we really support another woman? Anybody can start. I'll go first. I'll start. We can go this. I'll go ahead. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I'm going to choose the women supporting other women. So I think that 
for me personally, it's starting dialogue and starting conversations, especially when people are coming. As, a, as an, en an engineer who's been there for seven years, I see a lot of younger engineers come in and I try to create relationships with them. I try to talk to them. I try to go ahead and give them some of the, the insight and information that I didn't have when I started out and try to boost them from the beginning. And I think the other piece of that is letting go of the competitiveness um, I can remember from my childhood always feeling fiercely competitive with other women. A lot of times because you're seeking that male attention or that male approval. And that's something that's broken down over the course of my life. But you've got to let go of that com competitiveness and realize, like as was said earlier, when one of us rises, we all rise together. The advice that I have, it's like a really, it's, it's my advice to myself, it's just follow your gut. Like I get, I talk to so many people and they give me so much advice and at the end of the day, it's like really important to just follow what you wanna do in your business and make that decision and make, have a methodical decision. But I've like, advisors are amazing. But at the end of the day, listen to yourself and you know your business more than anyone else, so follow your gut. Because I've definitely made mistakes when I've followed some other people's advice, and then I'm like, I should have just done it my way first. So I think it's really important to listen to yourself, even when you have like different voices in your head um, from other people telling you what you should do. Because they've done, they've been successful at something at growing a business before, but there's like different types of advice that you should go to them for. I think everyone, you should know who you should go for for specific types of advice and know when to follow your gut. Yeah, um, I would say, I guess I'll take, I guess the one piece of advice that I have, it's so quick, I'll just give it to you guys. It's plan your work, then work your plan. Um, so that's my piece of advice I would say. And I would really guess I'll take the question on women, supporting women. I think we have to do that outside of social media and outside of events. I use my little sister as an, as an example. She'll meet women and then they'll be like, oh, I'm gonna mentor you. And she's emailing them and she's texting them and they never respond to her. And she's like, can you believe they said they were gonna mentor me and they never followed up? That's one of the biggest things that we as women do is we say things because it seems good or it's we're all doing it on social media. But if another woman emails you, take the time to email her back and on the flip side is if you email someone and you say I need your help when I ask you what kind of help you need you need to have answers right you need if someone asks me Jasmine how can I help you I have plenty of what is so if it's fundraising I want to talk to these people these are the customers I'm going after it has to really go both ways but especially for the older generation you know my sister's 25 so she's younger than me but to see her putting herself out there like that and then never being responded to that's kind of her Hurtful, especially when you feel like it's coming from another woman. So we both could do that. If you met someone today and they actually send you an email, then really follow up with them. Even if it's just to say, I'm extremely busy right now, send me an affordable email with who I could send it to. I do that a lot of times and I'm actually one of those people that actually follows up with people. Or if someone messages me and I'm extremely busy, I, re I will say, hey, this month I'm heads down. I can't do it. Follow up with me next month. I promise you, hopefully I'll be better. But I just see too often we say that we're doing things and we make these kind of assumptions
assumptions and we were assertions, should I say, like, oh, I'm, I love other women, I help and I support, but so often we don't. And so often someone, there's another woman who's asked you for something and you haven't followed up and you haven't helped her, but at the same time you're saying you're a feminist and you're, you're so pro-woman, but you're not helping them get to the table, you're not helping them get to the room. I've met so many people that will come up to me and say, two years ago you introduced me to your investor and I can't even remember her. I don't even remember ask, she asked me for that, but it makes me feel good that I actually sent them. She was like, it didn't work out, but you still made the introduction. And it didn't take me, if I don't even remember that I did it, that's how I know it didn't take me that long to actually do it. So I would just say, really make it a full circle thing. If someone offers to help you, have the, the things that you need help with, right? Don't just connect just to connect. This is what I need. Can you make these introductions? Can you help me with this? What articles are you reading that, are, that you find helpful? Have the ask. And then if you offer to help someone, actually do it. I want to underscore what Jasmine said because it was so important to be specific, right? Um, you meet a lot of people, they're like, well, I do 75 things. It gets crazy to understand. But if you're talking to someone who's an investor and they can give you either investing advice or fundraising, ask for their what's in their wheelhouse. Do the research. What is that thing that that person can give you? Because you can grow and build on that relationship, but you have to start somewhere. They can't solve it all for you. You might have 25 questions. What's the one that makes sense for that person right now? And then you can grow that relationship. And two, something that is super important no matter what kind of business you have is to have a forwardable email. What's a 20 Sec, uh, second, what's a four line little blurb about what your business is, make it easy to help somebody help you. So if you're asking, hey Jasmine, do you know somebody who can X, Y, Z? Sure, but I've already sent in the email when I asked her for help, here's a little blurb on my company that she can forward that costs her no extra pain, it makes it so easy. And a lot of times we learn that in the tech space, but we don't learn that outside of tech. So have what is the easiest version? Dummy proof it, two lines. This is her business, what she does, and then that person can really help you, guy or girl. So forwardable email, something that you can send to the person you're asking and really being specific, because that allows people to really be intentional and, and more clear about how they can help you. Hi, um, so I'll share my piece of advice with a little disclaimer. It's really hard for me to follow this advice, but it's really important. Um, so the biggest thing that I learned was someone told me, and I think a lot of us have heard this, but a manager once told me, the decisions are usually already made before you walk into the boardroom. And that's real. And that sucks. It is the worst thing about business. But the other thing that she said is those decisions were made on the golf course, which also sucks. So what this teaches me, what I had to learn to do, is when you're asked to interact with that social endeavor, do it. Okay? You can create strong boundaries, you can still be you, but you still have to interact with these people, whoever these people are, the people making the decisions, the people looking at the bottom line, at the sales pitch, the person giving you the money, or the person that might be giving you the promotion. You need to interact with them a little bit on a social environment. They need to know who you are, right? It's not always good enough to show up in the room with all of the answers if they're not asking or giving you the opportunity to speak, and sometimes you can't just burst in with a loud voice. You have to have some sort of reputation or some sort of built knowledge with them for them to be able to give you the space. So that means sometimes you are going to have to ask them, how's the uh, family, and would you like to have a cocktail later? It's a real thing. And do it and make it a practice. And it doesn't have to be every day, it doesn't need to be every week, it could literally be just a couple of times a year where you find yourself stuck at the conference together and it's a good time for you to spend a few hours getting to know that next new boss that's going to be pulling all of the strings. If you wanna make a change, 
You can't be invisible, so don't be. Um, I would say, I'm gonna answer the advocacy one, because I'm bad at like, snappy quick advice, because I, I write technical documentation, so that's real long-winded. Um, I would say mine centers, you know, in, in lifting like other people up in general is advocacy and active advocacy. I've been with MailChimp, for example, from kind of like you, from its more startup time to now it's like a larger company and people actually know what it is when I say that I work for MailChimp. And that inherently means that I have collected some amount of social capital with people who have been in the company is particularly at a higher level. And so I make it a really active uh, part of my my regular work, regardless of whether it's it overlaps in my engineering work, which it does not, is to go into our support department, make sure they know who I am, make myself available. I just hang out all there all day so that they know who I am and they feel comfortable asking me questions. And then that way I've found that when they're encountering problems obtaining a promotion or they've been repeatedly stonewalled by particular managers, I become the person that they come to. And then I leverage my social capital to make sure that people at that level or above know that I am aware that that thing is happening and that I think it's bullshit. And then I help them redesign their cover letter, redesign their resume. I set up mock interviews for them. And I, I create the space elsewhere for them to be achieving whatever it is they want to be achieving. And for that to work, to all of y'all's point, I do need to generally know what it is they want to achieve. So when people come to me and they're like, hey, can you mentor me? That's Sure, but like that's really vague. I don't know what you want from me. Do you want a description of my career path? Do you want to know something specific to how I moved through MailChimp? Do you want to know about my nonprofit work? Like, I'm also a product manager. Those are all really distinct skills. And so it is easiest for me to say yes and know exactly what amount of time sink a thing is going to be is if you come to me and you're like, I want would you mentor me? This is what I'm envisioning, like a quarterly coffee, and here are some of the questions, and here are some of my current barriers. Which of these things do you think you would best be suited to help me with? Because the reality is there's probably not one mentor who can solve all of your problems, but there might be multiple community stakeholders who can help you solve some of your problems. I am clearly not soft-spoken or delicate, so maybe I'm not your person for like, how do I go into a Fortune 500 company? Well, actually, I guess we are now, but a different, comp very, very corporate, old school company, and talk to an old white man. I've never been bad. I've never been good at that. I am not your person for that. But product management, I got, I got you. I could do that. So it um, also the common thread here is like, women are really willing to help other women. It's one on us to ask clearly um, and to follow up and to make it easy for the women or the people that we're asking to help us to help us. Um, and then as far as helping each other, I just wanted to close out. We'll do some quick questions, but um, just a quick reminder that um, there is more than enough success to go around. Like, we don't have to be mean to each other. We don't have to be catty with each other. There is no shortage of money, opportunities, or resources. I don't care what your business is. There's a gazillion marketing agencies. There's some opening right now. That's not stopping anybody. No guy didn't go after the C-suite level spot because there's already 70 white guys there. Like, there's no shortage of any of it. 
So, but we can get to it faster by asking each other, being intentional and supportive of each other, but we don't have to be mean, we don't have to withhold, make the introduction freely. I've introduced people to my mentors, my advisors, like don't be shy, it's, there's like no limit to it, they're not gonna forget you. The more intentional that we are about really supporting other women, the more that we can close that gap a lot quicker and really, again, get to the two things that matter most, the money and to generational wealth. Because when we have that and we have the power that we are the people in charge, we write the checks, we hire each other, and we fund other women's businesses. And so on that note, we'll take a couple of quick questions from the audience. But first, a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you so much. Any questions? Sure. Um, I definitely think starting with a pitch deck is great. Actually knowing what it is that you need to actually go to other cities. So really, you know, you can't ask for something until you know what you're asking for. So have you done a budget? You know, what is it going to cost? What other cities do you want to go to? What's the market research behind you wanting to go to these other cities? I can imagine like a Pont City market is really expensive. Are you going to try and go to another city where the real estate will be just as high as a Pont City market? I used to set Google alerts for pitch competitions. Um, so I would get alerts wherever a pitch competition was. And so I would see it. I would set Google alerts for like female founder, um, anything that you could think of, anything hunger, food waste, because I just wanted to know the most about it. But I think from the fundraising side, yeah, knowing what you need, having a pitch deck, um, and then figuring out like who in your network. One of my good friends gave a lesson on this a few weeks ago, and she said she used to make buckets of like, these people could give me 10,000, these people can give me 5,000, these people could give me 500, these people could give me 250. And then what she would know is that she would only have like a 10% close rate on any of those buckets. But when she was talking to them, she could say, well, if you're able to commit to 10,000, I have some people that could give me 20,000, and this is how I'm actually gonna get to this bigger piece picture, right? And so I need a million, but if you could give me 10,000, this is what it looks like. Um, I ultimately think, you know, venture fundraising should be like the last kind of source of fundraising, just having gone through it. I really think the very best investor is customers. And so figuring out how much more can you grow your current business to where that funding that you're generating from revenue can actually allow you to expand. Um, then I would look at like friends and family, angel investors, people that are gonna allow you to have more decisions about your business before you go venture because then it is, hey, it's not just your dream, it becomes the dream of every other partner that's in that fund and they may wanna see you go really fast and do different things. Um, and then I would also look for people that have done something similar. So like in your realm, I would look at Urban Stems, um, you know, even 1-800-Flowers. I actually know the founder of that, Jim McMahon, so I can introduce you to him. Um, but try and figure out who else has done something similar to you and then look and see how they've actually raised the funding. Um, those would be some fundraising tips I'd give you. Yeah, all of that. And I think another thing is like knowing like what type of round you wanna do. Like is it like VC or is, if you're doing friends and family, are you gonna do that like on a note, like a convertible note or a safe? 
um, or just straight up equity. Um, all of those things are like really important and just before you start pitching to people, look into what type of um, round you wanna do and then um, yeah, look, have someone look over your pitch deck who's actually raised money before, like us two maybe or anyone that you know um, and yeah, like get people who've done it before to look at it before you go in because if you go in first Go and also go into people that would least likely invest in you so you can get comfortable pitching. And then the ones that you really want to invest in you, do those like last when you're like a pro at it and you've gotten all the questions because they ask a lot of questions. Yeah, having sat on the panel side of that, so I've never been in the fundraising, well, in a nonprofit space I have, but in a for-profit space, I've only been on the panel side of it. I would say that customizing your pitch deck relevant to who you're pitching to is super, super important. It can be, frankly, really boring and obnoxious to follow when it's clearly a very broad pitch deck. So even if, for example, like I'm in the same building, if you were pitching to Jamestown, because Jamestown owns a lot of things like Chelsea Market and a lot of very similar, like borderline identical buildings around the country, even if you were pitching to them, pitching to them specific to what their market is. Like they have a very specific, clear aesthetic. They clearly, they offer pop-ups at their various locations for products that they are considering bringing into Jamestown-owned buildings. And so to that end, I would make sure that my pitch deck is specific to Jamestown and what Jamestown's brand is and what their value is and what position they view themselves as having in the community when I go to ask them for money or ask them for space or ask them for you know, pop-up time that they're not charging me for. In the same way that if you have your buckets separated for, you know, they, these people can offer me X, Y, or Z amount of money, knowing what's relevant to people at their size or scale. And then when you do your market research, not just understanding what current companies are doing, but where do you slot in? What opportunity are you filling that 1-800-Flowers or Urban Stems doesn't fill, right? Like I'm a customer of yours. I casually drop by and buy flowers there. And so it's knowing what drives customers like me or like anyone else at PCM to you versus Urban Stems or 1-800-Flowers because we've heard about those continuously, but you have to understand what gap you're filling in the market when you do that market research so that you can also come to the table with what is the opportunity cost. What money are those companies not picking up that you are? Fantastic answers. Question? Um, I make it, you don't want it to be a surprise, right? My, when I ask for a raise, I do not make it a surprise that that conversation was coming. I make it very consistent practice in my one-on-ones with my manager when, you know, when I'm like, I am doing three jobs right now. 
here is how I have divided up these jobs. This is project management, this is product management, and at a larger company, you'd be paying three people. And I come through with the documentation, and then I make it clear, literally on a weekly basis, I am still doing it, I am still doing it, I am still treading water, here are the things I'm dropping because you haven't paid me enough, or you don't give me enough hours of the day, or I'm not three goddamn human beings. And then that way, <laughs> it's, most of, are you not all mostly doing more than one job technically? Like if you look at the description, throughout my entire goddamn career I've been doing multiple jobs. What has changed is how I talk about that job with my management. So that by the time it comes around to my annual or we're a month out from my annual, I make it clear, hey, I'm gonna drop X, Y, and Z because I'm tired, I'm getting burnt out, so either you can give me more than the standard raise, which might be, you know, like 4% or whatever. At corporate America, it's usually like this, this average, you get this percent, this average, you get this percent, and it exceeds expectations, you get this percent, which most of us are probably exceeding expectations. I make it clear a month beforehand, hey, I'm going to drop all of these responsibilities, and you can go out and hire someone for that extra job, or you can give me 10%. That's, those are the options available to you. So I want to add one thing on that because that was some awesome advice that we just got to hear. Two things to add on this. You said one-on-one. -on -one. If you're not having them or if you're not having them with your employees, you need to be and make it happen. It's a very serious thing. It is your only time that you're going to get with that direct manager that's going to change your life in that way, that's going to give you the promotion, the seat at the table, or the raise. And the next piece is you said documentation, which is another super key piece. Uh, the majority of your C-suite and mid-level managers are not going to respond to your feelings. They're going to respond to your bottom line. So how is your raise going to build the bottom line? And also, how is your discrepancy of pay apparent? So you can do the research. I mean, we've, we've heard about the websites, right? Glassdoor is the first one you're thinking of. Do a lot more digging. Get on Manta and see what the comp competition companies are pulling in for revenue, right? Understand What's the website? I'm sorry? Manta, M-A-N-T-A dot com. That one, especially for mid to smaller companies, is going to be really grand because it's going to tell you what their revenue is or approximation. Mm -hmm. If you can compare your company to another one and then you can even somehow backwards engineer via Google how your person that compares to your job is getting paid like alongside of you. I mean, I'm speaking from a, a large company standpoint, but I can also be very transparent and tell you I am not surprising my boss next week. He and I have had this on the books for six months, and I have three pages of documentation about the raise that I expect, okay? Mm -hmm. It's not gonna be easy to secure it, and I'm still probably a year away from seeing it, but you have to have that kind of diligence. So talk about the money, get your research out there, see how you stack against the competition, prove all of these points, it's data, it's bottom line, that's it. And the one-on-one -on -one is the piece that's gonna get you the time to say, look at the bottom line, look mm -hmm. at the statistics, and then you can have a real piece where they'll acknowledge in that moment if they're willing to, if they're capable of giving you what you need once they see the, the information. But have a portfolio of asks because like I have not always gotten the exact raise I've wanted. Uh, very recently I got a raise but not the specific raise that I asked for. We met somewhere in the middle but I had a portfolio of asks. I got two thirds of what I wanted. I didn't have just one ask, my ask were multiple things. I asked for a raise and I asked for a change of title and I asked for the ability to hire someone to do one of the three jobs that I was doing. And I didn't get the exact title change and I didn't get the exact money change, but I was able to leverage that into an open internal position at MailChimp 
where I was able to stipulate, I wanna hire internally and I wanna hire from these specific pools of people. Because you have to be prepared for them to counter and be like, well, we can't do exactly that. And then you can say, cool, if you can't do exactly that, then let's meet here and here are the other things that I need for you to meet me somewhere where I can live with this job. Make sure you have backups to what you want. And then you can use organizations like Tequeria. So we're not just for Latines, we're also for allies. We maintain an anonymized spreadsheet uh, that people self-report in what their salaries are, what their positions are, what companies they're at, uh, and then what their extended benefits packages are so that people are able to take that in and be like, hey, look, here what other Latinos are making. So we can't even say this is a matter of like, I'm comparing myself to a white guy. I'm comparing myself to other Latinos and this is what other Latinos at, in my position in these specific cities are making. And so that's, again, that data point is really hard to to argue with. Damn. <laughs> that was incredible advice. We have time for one last question. Thank you so much for sharing those really tactical, strategic things that we can implement. Um, last question of the day. Yeah, we're trademarked, so as soon as we were kind of public, that was something that, to start doing, I think, before you start talking about it and, you know, really putting it out there. So for me, I was doing all these pitch competitions, so I was like, I better trademark this because in a pitch competition, there's a thousand people out there that could take your idea and just hear it and then try and start it in their own city. Um, so, yeah, I, I trademarked it. Um, I would say try and find a trademark attorney that's just going to give you a flat rate because um, it can get pretty expensive. And then also just know, I think it took me maybe a year to get the trademark back. It took, it took some time, maybe, maybe six months to a year um, before we actually got it. And then just also be very um, open to everything you think your brand can extend into. And so don't just trademark for just kind of one category if you think, you know, like for me, I thought, well, maybe one day we would, we would actually be in the food business. Like, who's to say that we won't sell food? Who's to say we won't have a grocery store or a restaurant or that we won't have products and supplies? And so when I trademarked the name, I trademarked it for so many different categories that we could actually extend into. Um, and that was really smart of me to do because now as I'm thinking of all these things and they're really looking very um, like it could happen, now I have all these trademarks for it. Uh, the other thing I would think to tell all of the women here is to make sure that you become a certified women business enterprise, um, or if you're a woman of color, to become a minority business enterprise. There are so many businesses that are saying, hey, we're gonna spend $500 million with women and female, found, uh, female founders and minority-owned businesses, and so if you're gonna go through the process of trademarking, you should go to the process of becoming a certified business as well, um, because what it typically does is it gets you better payment terms, that's really the best way to say, and I've, I've heard that from a lot of the corporates I was meeting with Accenture recently, and she said, you know, all of my minority and women-owned suppliers, I pay them net 30. If you're not, if you don't have those certifications, I pay you net 120, because they know that women and minority-owned businesses, typically we need everything that we can get. So we, we need that revenue coming in. We don't have time to wait 120 days. And so when I learned that, I was like, oh, that's a jewel. I've got to tell that to everybody, because that gets you paid three months 
faster uh, just by having that certification. So those are things that I would just go ahead and do. Um, again, like that, planning your work and then working your plan. It's just literally like the, t the checklist and the to-do list. But if you're going to get trademarked, go ahead and get certified as well, um, especially before you start really fundraising and giving up any percentage of your company because you have to own 51% to... 51% has to be female founded or 51% has to be LGBTQ founded if you're going to try and get that certification and it has to stay that way. So as you start raising capital, you give up a percentage of your company and you'll lose those certifications. So get them early before you get started, right when you get your trademark and allow that to get you a, a nice little bundle of business um, and build some revenue around it. That was really fantastic advice. Um, and it was the Women Business WeBank or WBank? Yeah, WeBank. WeBank is how you get certified through for WBE. Yep. Any other trademark feedback advice? Um, for the trademark, we're in the process of doing that right now. Um, all of this stuff, it like prepares you to be a big business that you are. And we've made like a lot of mistakes that you are going to be and we made a lot of mistakes in the beginning where we didn't do all of those little things so it's really good to set up like a strong foundation with trademarks with like the stocks with like somebody told me to look into ff stock a ceo of this big company um it's like the specific stock for founders all of these things um are so important if you want to build yourself up to be a multi-million dollar business or a billion dollar business because it's really going to like come and bite you um, if you, when you do grow to be a big business, so just set the foundation now.